So, good morning, Carlo. Good morning. Um, welcome to a new episode of Speed Change Repeat. On today's episode, we are in Eindhoven at the Technical University of Eindhoven with Carlo van der Veer. If I pronounce that correctly. It's coming close. Carlo van der Veer, but that's, that's the Dutch way. I'm fine with anything. <laughs> so, before we kick it off, why don't we just briefly talk about where we are at this point in time? So, we call it the Easy Lab, as uh, if I correctly mention it. Uh, it's it's not maybe the, the right linguistic pronunciation, <laughs> but yes, it's the Eindhoven AI Systems Institute. Right. We, we tend to pronounce it as easy here. Because why, why make it the, the full form is not too easy. That's, <laughs> no, that's true. So why make it difficult? Now, this is a new uh, recently established institute here in Eindhoven where we uh, try to give an extra impulse on all the AI that's, that's happening here in the region and also at the university. So... Um, I got a budget of 100 million for the next five years from the university, real money, in order to hire extra new people to start new projects to build an ecosystem. That's kind of a, a, yeah, an inspiring uh, time. Fantastic. So before we go into actually the center and the ambitions of the university as mm -hmm. well as the, of the center, let's go with, you know, we typically start with an introduction of who you are because before, behind every great, you know, initiative, there are people. And that's where we always start with what is the context? Who are these people and what have you done before? So very rough, who are you, Carlo? And let's kick it off quickly with your you know, educational background. You studied here as well. You moved to uh, Austria. Where are you yeah. from? And uh, quickly through your corporate uh, kind of life before you ended up where you are right now. Okay, I'm a mechanical engineering by education. Indeed here at, uh, at this university. I continued in the research, but rather in the contract research to start working for a contract research uh, firm, TNO, in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. and, um, and TNO stands for for the people who are not fully aware? Uh, yeah, TNO is an applied uh, physical research organization or something like that. Across the country. And it's, it's a contract research organization, like most countries have one. So yep. to do the independent research and the certification and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that was an interesting time. And I also had the opportunity to do my PhD in parallel to that. So that's why I was in Austria a lot, uh, because I uh, did my PhD on the uh, University of Austria. Right. Diehard mechanical engineering, diesel engine kind of stuff. Uh -huh. So that was uh, a nice area. And... Yeah, then I somehow lost track and got into management and I, I led a big division over there. Had to move back to the region here uh, because that was an uh, agreement I had with my wife uh, that, that when the children would appear, we would go back to the south of the Netherlands. Uh -huh. And then I landed here at uh, Siemens Video, which was the navigation area, actually the old Philips Karin navigation development. Uh-huh. Um, started working there. Uh, after a year, I was uh, uh, appointed as a new site manager there. Uh, did that six years, nice time. And then we took it up and brought it to TomTom -Tom because at that moment, Siemens wanted to get rid of all the automotive activities, sold most of that to Continental. But uh, we squeezed out and uh, joined TomTom. -Tom. And since then, I worked for TomTom, -Tom actually. And Speaking of TomTom, -Tom, I just last week uh, published the episode with Heiko, Heiko Schilling. Heiko Schilling, oh, yeah. that's my former colleague, yeah. <laughs> well, that must, must have been interesting. That's oh, a, yes, that's he's a, fantastic. That's a, he's fantastic. Uh, that's my old former colleague, although I do still have a little bit of link of TomTom. -Tom. Uh, most of the time now I work at university where I started about eight, nine years ago in parallel to TomTom -Tom, uh, because they looked here for somebody who was um, some somebody out of the industry 
in order to stimulate more research on mobility. That's mm-hmm. what my assignment was here. I did that for a couple of years, and then last year they asked me to uh, to also start this new institute here. But outside of that, it's 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 about sixty seventy percent of my my job, and the rest I'm I'm in supervisory boards of all kind of companies, and I travel the world a little bit to talk about the future of mobility, advising some governments and companies. Uh, because yeah, that's that's a typical industry that's in the midst of a disruption. So it's always interesting to discuss with industry leaders where that's heading. Absolutely, and it's an industry that employs so many people. So many people's livelihoods are yeah, dependent on it, and thus I think it is a very high priority for a lot of. Maybe the the, the origin of that. It's interesting to share that is that people uh, are mobi- mobile by design. There's some something happened in evolution that wants us to be mobile because mm-hmm. it, it led to more success in evolutionary times. But it's that's still hidden very deep in our souls that we want to get out and be on our way for a little bit more than one hour per day. It's relatively constant. So that's that's always the basis. I keep on telling that. So mobility is not uh, a means to give, go from A to B. It's a purpose on its own. You ah. cannot get it out of people, even if you bring all their stuff and collect their garbage so that they can still it and work at home. Mm-hmm. And people still want to get out for a little bit more than one hour per day. That's so that, deep hidden. That, that's in interesting. Do you do you think has that has to do with individuals being curious by nature and that yeah. we always want to put ourselves out? Yeah, it, it maybe not. That's spiritual kind of said. The thing is that if you would never left your cave in evolutionary times, you probably will not last very long. You have to go out that's and instinctive. hunt hunt and gather and protect and right. reproduce all this kind of stuff. Yeah. It's very hard if you just stay in your cave. So there was uh, kind of a benefit to go around. It's, by the way, not, it was not very sensible to just keep on walking all day. That's not a sensible way of using your energy. And di- therefore, the evolutionary defined optimum uh-huh. is, is a little bit more than one hour. And that's, so that's still very deep in our genes. That's still, as you see it now, that's why you have to do 10,000 steps. That's... A, Straight correlation. <laughs> yeah. So our body is engineered to that. So that's one thing. The other thing is that people spend about thirteen to fifteen percent on mobility of their budget. Oh. And that's that's also a very strange constant. Mm-hmm. So now that you see, and we will come back to that, that cars get very cheaper. They will get very much cheaper. That doesn't mean that people do not spend. Uh, of they're going to spend less on mobility. They're probably going to buy more. So the, okay. And that's that's a thing which same happened to food. So in the sixties we had this astronaut food. So everybody mm-hmm. thought from the future you just take a pill for right twenty cents and uh-huh. a gulp of water and you're ready. Now we still still spend massive amounts on fancy dinners. You know, that's the thing. That's a constant that all. The, this also means the thirteen to fifteen percent that the thirteen to fifteen percent of the gross domestic problem of the entire world is being spent on mobility and that indicates how huge this industry is and will remain. This is actually a very interesting perspective because indeed on one hand you could think that as things get cheaper, mobility gets cheaper, Mm -hmm. but it is counteracted by people's desire to go further. You know, if people like going back two, three generations, when I speak to my grandfather, it's like where their horizon would end on the number of kilometers they would do uh, was way less, but the number of exactly. amount of time. Uh, where, where did you? Where, where did he grow up? So I grew up in India. In India. Sorry, so sorry. Prob- I didn't grow up in India. My grandparents are from India. Yeah, yeah. but they've probably never left the country. Exactly. I guess. Yeah. And, yeah. and if you look at my children now, they've already been around the world. And that's the thing that all this technology. So the constant is actually this one hour and six minutes. The constant is that we still want to have food. The the we have some biological constant and technology is 
appears appeared to be able to deliver yeah. exponentially more value for this or, constant. Yeah. So if you look at the distance that we travel, it's an exponential growth already for 100 years because of technology that we invented. And it still it's rises now to an average of Western people to 100 kilometers per day, half of which is flying. Maybe not at this corona time, but uh, <laughs> they probably will come back and, and, and we will continue to fly further. Yeah, further. I mean, at this point, of course, Flybe just uh, closed yeah. their doors. And I mean, uh, the industries are under a bit of a difficult situation. It's, that's common practice. Eh? That's some, some winners and some losers. And they're now under pressure. And, this, and that's always shakes out Indeed. the, no, the worst yeah, performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you, you will end up with an he even healthier system economically. Hopefully, you know, the survival of the fittest is kind of ingrained. Now, but coming back to that point, I think just coming from my personal experience, like, indeed, my grandparents only moved, well, they were refugees from Bangladesh to India during okay. the separation of the, yep. um, after the India got independence, yep. so one country, basically. My father has traveled in his lifetime about 70 countries. I'm 23. I've already traveled 30 countries. And... My goal is by the age of 30, travel 100 countries. The 17 or 70, your father? Uh, 70, 70. Yeah, that, but that, that's already above average. Of course, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, but the yeah. fact is that, you know, exactly. he did it like he did that within now he's 50, uh, 56. But my goal is by 30, travel 100 countries. Yeah, These exactly. were never even possible goals before for a normal human being. No. You know, you could go travel you know, around the world in 80 days, but those are books. No, but that's, 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 that's <laughs> a very clear uh, research in that one. Grubler is a famous one that did uh -huh. some research on that, and it showed really an exponential growth in range. Absolutely. And there's, and there's a big benefit behind it, and economically as well. If 100 years ago, if, I've, if I would have find a job within three kilometers of my house, yeah. then I would be probably... a tomato harvester mm. or something mm -hmm. a tomato mm -hmm. picker i don't know what what what's different kind of jobs which is a bad thing for the economy because i'm bad at that mm. because if you can make a choice of more companies to work or companies can make a choice of more people that's an economical benefit so the growth in range because of technology was good for the development of the economy we should start thinking if a growth beyond 100 kilometers per day is still societally and and also economically explainable and that that's a thing that I hope that some reasons we we start investing in better instead of more, 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 mm. because there's no real reasoning behind. But there's some strange biological urge for people to just continue to explore and go further and go wider. Absolutely, and I, I want to see thousand countries before I'm thirty. <laughs> uh, kind yeah. of things. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I know for sure. And then it's, now it's hidden deep in our genes. Th that that's exactly what we see, and what we also see is that you know now we sort of close ourselves to one world, but now interplanetary movement at some point sooner than later will become a reality and then we'll see where that takes us. Now, this is a very interesting. We'll come back to space of mobility. But before that, let's say just briefly on where we are right now and the uh, the lab and the, why why should a university t you know invest so much in artificial intelligence in the space of mobility and why should they, why should we care? In the time of typing machines, uh, we, we luckily also decided to invest in printers because otherwise we would now be the one and only typing machine university in the world, maybe the best. But that, that doesn't bring a lot. <laughs> so you, have to, you have to move with technology. And it, it's without a, without a doubt that the artificial intelligence will be a very important uh, element of future technology if you want to make the extra step if the industry here uh, that, that we are surrounded by wants to make the extra technology, they, they need resources 
that studied AI that know what it's about. They want to do research with us on AI as an economical thing. But I, I also like any tech, new technology. There's a huge benefit as well mm-hmm. from this technology. Uh, you, you, you can uh, prevent accidents to happen. You can be better in, in, in healthcare, etc. if you use this enormous technology potential. And like any other technology in history, and there's also a negative backside from it. There's a flip side, like always. And that's also with AI. That's some danger again. So if we invented bricks, we could build houses, but you can also uh, crash a window with it. And throw now, it luckily, at people, yeah. yeah, throw at people. Now, luckily, most bricks are used for building houses. So bottom line, most technologies are a good thing. Mm-hmm. AI is, is a dangerous thing to play around with. The, the thing is that I do think the benefits are much bigger than the than the dangers, but the dangers can be can ruin the planet. Huh? That's that's that which brick cannot do. You have to mm-hmm. throw a lot of bricks in order to do. Exactly, we have given exponential powers to people, exactly, and yeah, that so is. Um, there's only three technologies that have the ability to 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 kill the planet. You know, that's that's environmental uh, uh, pollution. Climate change, that, that's one. The other one is nuclear power or other mass weapons of mass destruction. And the third is AI, which might be the most dangerous of the three. Because it's also the one which is... Well, uh, the thing with these three are they're not very tangible, except maybe the nuclear one. But it's, I think the sure. lack of tangibility, especially when yeah. it comes to AI, is people do not recognize if you're under threat or not. And of course, you know, like in media, we see interesting concepts are coming up and people some people are scared some people are ignorant but i think a lot of people are still very much ignorant on this no oh, yeah, that's game. that's a, I, what i fully agree with you so if if we would and this might happen in 30 years it probably will be more than 50 to 60 years of if this artificial general intelligence mm-hmm. that will pass us in abilities and it doesn't have to be as good as us on general level if it can do a few things already better than us the implications might already be bigger but that's 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 the thing that's in the air. If you know it's happening in fifty years, if there would be a myth that we're quite sure that a, a, a meteor would hit Earth and destroy the entire life in fifty years from now, we would join forces and start planning some kind of mitigation scenario. No, but here we just laugh at the nice scenarios that that are coming to us, and and even I feel relatively relaxed where I shouldn't be. <laughs> we should act on that one. All right, now. Um that, that that's we'll come back to the the point about um, the sort of the threat or the opportunities with AI, but historically the Technical University of Eindhoven, what is it famous for? And uh, oh, that's a good question. Yeah, and why, and why what are you we, proud of here? Let's say why we decided way. now. Yeah, of course we were born like entire Eindhoven, which was a small village until Philip started uh, making doing business here, inventing light bulbs and all the other stuff. And how come uh, Philips was born here? Was it uh, a choice or it, was it... Uh, it was a choice. He came from a little bit up north and he just looked for cheap labor. Sure. And this was a very poor region with peasants mm-hmm. on, a, on a very poor sand soil and not rather something to harvest. So hardworking people and that's what Phillips was looking for. Right. And cheap cheap ground, cheap labor, etc. That's how it started here over over a century ago. Uh, but because of this ecosystem, it attracted a lot of knowledge workers. It attracted a lot of people from all around the country and around Europe and around the world now. And this ecosystem being built, and based on that ecosystem, also initiated mainly by Philips, mm-hmm. we started the university 
64 years ago, so it's relatively young. But the university was, by definition, focused on these products that Phyllis makes. So we had a lot of electronics, system engineering, design is quite heavy mm-hmm. here. Also, there's not so much our university, although we do a bit of that, but there's also a design academy here. Dutch Design Week here every year, which is one of the world-famous design shows. So it's it's technology and design where we where was a big need from the industry and why the university was built on that one. That's a traditional strength of the university to yeah. make to make stuff. And uh, like things like Moore's Law, the basis on, upon which we have this computer power exponentially right. yeah. growing is is made possible already for decades by technology that's invested that's co-invented over mm-hmm. a big part invented here in the region. The glass tube uh, transistor, the, the transistor after that one, even the switch relay modules that we used in the beginning after the punch cards, yeah, all this kind of stuff came for a big part of Philips Hems. And still now today when the wafer steppers that make the chips are actually from ASML, mm-hmm. which is also in this region, which is just a Philips spin-off. That's an over-investment of Philips from from history that... that chose his own path and now makes 85% of the world's chip machines. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the region. That's where we as a university were also equipped. And now if you talk AI, then the classical AI, what you see is that it's consumer-data-based. Ba- consumer so you you search for songs or for travels and Google and Spotify know exactly what the next thing is. They know you better at a certain point than yourself. That's all consumer-based input AI. Where if they gave a, a wrong uh, advice, you just laugh of it, but you, it doesn't kill you. Mm-hmm. With machine data, and that's what's happening now, that not so mm. much the consumers, but that's the machines. That's systems comes in. Right? That's where the system comes in. Right. Systems, the machines starting to produce the data, which is exponentially more than we can, can uh, produce. Um, it's it's to be used real time. Yeah. It's much more fuzzy data. You have to, you have to filter it. You have to more interpreted, you have to mix it with human behavior and mm-hmm. human uh, judgment and then also put it in a machine where the consequences are much uh, more important because you know, if your car goes left instead of right that's or you, you cut off the wrong leg of a, of a patient, that's, yeah, that's, <laughs> the consequences that's a bit far real. reacher, yeah. far, far further reaching than the, than the classical one. So that's, that's actually where, when we think the AI comes to work in our front garden and that's why we also made this step in order to, uh, to try to stand out. So, so in the next five years, the university is planning to invest 100 million uh, euros yep. into AI with the lab. What is the vision with the lab? What do you want to achieve? Yeah, the, 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 so the, the, the goals are quite straight. We want to hire people. Most of this money... Uh, will go to hire the right the right resources. Uh, so wherever you hear this on the entire world, Eindhoven is a nice region to live. You can have a house with a garden uh, for, for a third of the price if you want to go to Silicon Valley or whatever. You have much more fun here. And that's what we try to achieve, to really make a nice ecosystem for people to track from the entire world to come and work here. That's, that's something that we're going to measure. And the other thing is that we want to also now start the education level. So we have bachelors and masters. The first two masters will start in September so that you really can get an AI degree. So the aim is that in five years from now, 25% of the engineers that we produce and that will leave the Technical University of Eindhoven have an AI profile. And that's on itself already 300 people. So we're a relatively small university, mm-hmm. but that's, that's something that the, yeah, the industry is screaming for. And we also want to uh, leverage on the money that we invest by uh, 
practically a lot of research budget from the available budgets on a European level or a national level towards Eindhoven because we think it's well invested or Already, better invested yeah. here than somewhere else. That's uh -huh. at least uh, our goal. And what is the role of private partnership in this? Yeah, we work so so on AI. You can that, and that's a, that's a problem with AI. There's no real closing definition of AI, but <laughs> but if you look at all the application areas from AI, we selected three where at least we already have some competence, and where on the other hand there's a, a clear uh, industry need on those levels. So we are at this moment working with ASML, NXP, uh, Philips, ProDrive, all local mm -hmm. partners here. Uh, in order with, him, with them to define the portfolio. Because this money that comes available for further development, um, that's that's for research that they're also interested in. So we try to team up with them in order to carry out these projects that, mm -hmm. that we foresee in the next years. And this is already running of, uh, today. So this, this started already immediately in the beginning. So the first project right. already launched in the first half year that we're busy now. In terms of the themes, you know, of course, AI is a, it's a technology which can be applied in all yep. sorts of ways, even in systems. So I know autonomous vehicles is big on the agenda. Yep. So is mobility, healthcare, what, what, what is uh, on the agenda? What yeah, is that's so it's indeed mobility, healthcare, and the third that we chose from out of the 20 possible applications, the third one is the high-tech industry, mm -hmm. which means actually what ASML is busy with. So all this huge amount of data that comes out of these machines want to somehow try to to filter or get the get the clumps of gold that's in that data in order to make these machines even more accurate and more reliable so that's actually the big assignments that's in the high-tech industry mm -hmm. that's why we also want to make a step with our high-tech systems background trying to get them yet a dimension more accurate and yet a more a dimension more reliable so that's that's the third apart from that health of course with the obvious where we both have preventive uh, so, so make sure have vitality kind of things. So all this data that that you can use in order to make you more healthy, yeah, preventive health, but also the curative health, where the interpretation of all the data that comes from these cardiovascular systems or uh, what have you, all these radar kind of systems, uh, the MRE scanner, yeah. etc. Now that this the data is, is also exploding, and it's too much for humans to to really really try to process indeed indeed and i mean i think uh, that's uh, the two things that you mentioned and indeed research is one and then education yeah. following and that is a big requirement from from the industry i mean we see that uh at the erasmus university where i'm uh, currently positioned uh same same ambition we have a different profile completely but the expectation is that you know on one hand what you have is the engineers who need to understand also problem side of things and yeah. understand how to apply their knowledge and yeah. to tackle some of the societal issues. On the other hand, we have the more social science students, but also who need to be equipped to have some technical skills or at least be able actually, to communicate yeah. correctly. And then we need the people who can be the bridge or be in this. The so we call it actually AI for the real world. So it, it, <laughs> it comes out of this 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 cyber kind of thing where, uh -huh. uh, where the last 10 years all the fun happened. And now it's touching the real world and that's where our competences come in. So the third application area, therefore, is also the mobility, which gives me a little bit of a, a head start because that's where I worked in for 30 years. Well, this years. is a perfect uh, move and, uh, on into mobility. So. Yeah, and mobility, you have a lot of data, of course, on how people behave so that you can also, for public transport and, and all this kind of stuff, so to, to do much decent planning, to, to make it more demand-driven, you need all this huge amount of data of where 
people, so the origin, destination, that's one thing. And of course, one of the very inspiring stuff is also the autonomous vehicle. It's the most used example if you talk AI is the driverless vehicles. So, where, uh, so what like to kick it off into mobility? Yeah. What is the mobility that you see? Uh, like, what is it that you look out for mobility? How is the industry going to change? The, the industry is, is changed so much that I think the most important thing that's currently happening is that all the many disadvantages that come with mobility are being solved quite fast. Like. By far, number one is the limited safety, so the accidents that happen. The three to three and a half thousand people that die every day in mobility-related accidents, which is more than 9-11, so say a 9-11 every day. I mean, there's some very strange tolerance we have for that, mm. because we still talk 9-11, and ever since, every day, the same happened on the roads. That that That's a thing by far with the highest uh, societal problems. And then... Far after that, we should look at the pollution problems and then at the congestion problems, which is, by the way, regarded as the biggest problem by a lot of people, but it's by far not. And even before that, we also should look at the problem of the sound, uh, of the noise uh, that, that mobility makes. And and that's the number one problem for the future. So I think technology can solve a lot of the problems that I just mentioned. The biggest problem to solve probably will be the use of public space. Mm-hmm. But wherever you look on the world now, you look at cars, and that's not really that, that we exaggerated that. And it's not being solved by just adding new asphalt, which is the Pavlov reaction when some congestion of some problem occurs. Add new asphalt. I always compare that, and I and I quote, not the name, but Fred Kent quoted once that. Um, Adding more asphalt in order to prevent congestion is like loosening your belt to prevent obesity. You know? <laughs> yeah, but, uh, people that really want to lose weight, they they just tighten their belt mm. a little bit to to be reminded that they have another problem than that their belt is too too, too mm. tight. And that's the thing. The last one, I think, if we manage to just to to make a cut in that constant Pavlov reaction to add more. Uh, public space for mobility that's something that I foresee that in the next 10 years might be turned around this is an interesting point because uh, we first mapped the roads for the city and then now the city is kind of mapped around the the roads exactly how do you see that to be changing because indeed if we look anywhere around we see cars driving around and it is and uh in already in European cities, a lot of them we see sort of a reversal in the city center. Exactly. But do you think it's uh, manageable in terms of like are we as because we started off the interview with the fact that you know mobility is something so natural to people, people want to be yep. mobile. But it, it, would this be restrictive, or do we already have solutions to still have people mobile, but in a much safer and a more you know simple or nicer way? Yeah, I think I think so. so for, or a start, I think we will have inherently safe cars in the future. That's the main thing that AI can also bring. I specifically do not talk about driverless cars because I don't think they add safety. That's 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 one thing um, where I tend to object to, that people think that because of safety we want to have driverless cars. And what is your opinion on that? I think, yes, driverless cars will in due course be safer than the current yeah. people driving around. But why? This is the real question. 
why would you limit this technology to only to driverless cars? It would be much cheaper and much sooner to apply this kind of technology that prevent all accidents to happen to cars that are still driving around with a driver. So and that's the essence. So you don't have to have a driverless vehicle in order to be inherently safe. Mm. That's something that you I just can have mentioned. human and uh, machine intelligence work together to prevent a lot of the situation. Like even in chess and all the other applications that we already passed that are all playing in conditioned environments mm-hmm. because that's the essential thing. Cars don't drive around in a conditioned world. It, it's it's actually all everything is corner cases. Yeah. And in this kind of thing, the man-machine combination works much better for the next centuries to come. And uh, so you drive, you flexibly interpret the law, which is necessary every now and then to drive around, especially when you go back to India. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but not only India, by the way. Everyone thinks about India, but but I think even here in the very well-organized Netherlands, it's uh, it's really similar to that. Um but uh, just the moment before you make an accident, the car can take over or at least prevent the accident to happen or at least to, to be lethal mm-hmm. or to injure somebody. So, uh, and that's, that's the system where we are heading for. Inherently safe, inherently clean vehicles. Mm-hmm. We solve all these problems except for the space problem. And for the space problem is just, that's a, a sp- certainly for cities, if you design your cities uh, around cars, and traffic, you will get cars and traffic. If you design your cities around people and places, then you will get people and places. And that's that's a thing that you really see going on now in, in the big cities, Barcelona, with which is cutting off streets in their super block philosophy. Um, uh, Paris has a very nice philosophy, also based on this one hour of travel, to try to have this 15-minute city so that wherever people live, within 15 minutes you can... 15 minutes you can by walk or by bike, be sure to reach a shopping center, work, mm-hmm, all, mm-hmm. all this other stuff, so that you, you keep everything within reach. And that's that's a really um, kind of a revolution that you see happening in the last decades. And it's a one-way street, actually. So in Amsterdam, everybody knows Amsterdam as a bike-friendly city. So we we have an enormous amount of bikes, and which solves an enormous amount of mobility problems. Yeah. Because it's high capacity, it's very cheap, it's very pleasant to look at relatively, etc. So they solve a lot of problems, but it, it obviously, yeah, but it's the Netherlands. It's, it's flat and blah, blah, blah. But if you look at pictures of Amsterdam 40, 50 years ago, it's stuffed with cars, just like any other city in Asia that you see now. So there is, nobody wants to go back to that situation in mm. Amsterdam. Nobody. Mm. And back then, the people, oh, I don't want to have my car in front of the house, blah, blah, blah. You see this shift. On the other hand, I must say that although these pictures show tons of cars, the number of cars per inhabitant in the Netherlands has grown up with a factor three. So the parking becomes the matter as well. Exactly. So, so yes, the car will still be important in the future, but we will have to handle it a little bit more sensible than we used to do mm-hmm. by hiding it, by not letting it in areas where it doesn't have anything thing. And, and and I don't care if it's electric or it's driverless. Or you just want to get less of them in city centers. A city, and I quote my, my, my colleague Marco de Brommelstoet, who's the biking professor here in the Netherlands, uh-huh. he has this nice quote that uh, a car doesn't need, car, uh, it doesn't need driverless cars. A city doesn't need driverless cars. It needs carless drivers. So, <laughs> so people on bikes are using public transport. <laughs> yeah. And that's actually the essence. Because if, if public space is your biggest enemy, mm-hmm. 
or your thing that you want, not your enemy, but the thing that you want to preserve, then you need mobility preferably as slow as possible because if you know you're traveling an hour and not a certain distance, why not keep the distance then limited? And on the other hand, it has a very high corridor capacity, so a lot of capacity that you can move a lot of people on square meters. And after pedestrians, the bike is king there, even much better than public transport. So this is interesting because this is where, you know, you would, uh, so you mentioned about that autonomous vehicle on its own should not be the target. Right. Right. But if I look at the, the problem that you're trying to solve, which is about space and urban design in a way, then in my opinion, it is a solution because right now, if I uh, like cars, the driving, the everything is optimized to basically the humans and how fast our reaction time, speed that we drive at and things like that. Mm-hmm. Assuming that cars can compute way faster, wouldn't then we would have much more cars. We don't need that much space between cars. We can put a lot more in the same space. And um, therefore, you can shrink the roads just to the width and the... And you can make the them faster way. because they react faster. Exactly. So then you will ha- then you have a situation of, of towns where cars with... 70 centimeters distance, drive 110 kilometers per hour through the city center because they they are able to react faster on a child crossing the street or what have you. That That's physically also limited, of course, because you don't want to sit in a car that can react very fast and break. Because that could make And go from 110 to, to nil in six meters. That would that, also be a nasty thing. But even then, that that's not a very effective system as well because still these cars need relatively a lot of space compared to bikes or public transport or what have you it it works maybe if you want to see sit with five strangers in a capsule for a longer time in order to travel this 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 vision of shared vehicles where you with complete strangers are a bunch of scary guys just you you put your daughter in there and off she goes to school with these stinky, strange other people. I don't well, think that that's Uber a better pool? system as we have now. Well, isn't that Uber Pool already? How, do you know how many people use Uber Pool versus Uber Normal? Don't have the statistics. No, but it's it's you even people rather sit alone in a car than with strangers. I I don't feel so, and I'm an extrovert person. I don't feel so happy being in an elevator with five strangers for. 45 seconds you know that's awkward and then all time with the strangers in the car it's it's fun every now i do i do uber pool and it's always fun etc but it's just incidental fun Mm. this is not my new way of of traveling so i mean in a way so what we want is we want safer more convenient and better mobility uh at the same time not constructing or our instinctive mobility needs so mm-hmm. people want to move and want to move faster and thus you know saying that okay we're going to close off the city center from cars on its own can be quite a drastic move but it won't be the most fulfilling move for the inhabitants of the city and uh, ask people from amsterdam if they want to go back to this car area era and 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 the other thing and i and i do share with you that there are some limitations on that one because at a certain moment, if you really are going to cut them off from the modality car at all, it is by far the best 
serving way of mobility, maybe together with bikes. Because mm-hmm. bikes give you also the, the liberty and the freedom to move and to choose your, choose your path. But cars do a very good job in fulfilling your reptile brain's needs. It's, it's an extension of your cave that smells like you, mm. if it's your own car, not a shared car. It smells like you, it hides you, you can escape with it, you can bring your child to the hospital. It's the ideal way for hunting and gathering. And, and that's with every research that you see on that one, that people are very, very, very happy with their car. Much more happy, although the popular voice doesn't say so, but if you do research, it's much more happy than, than sitting in public transport. So interesting. So do you not believe that the future of um, cars are shared? Correct. And a lot of people say, yeah, but they're, they're idling for 95% of the time. You only use it for 5% of the time. But there's not so much stuff you own that you use more than 5% of the time. Your bed, your telephone, your television, some of your clothes. And that's about it. Your garden hose you rarely use. Your toilet you use less than 1% of the day. And uh, I'm with a family of five, so on a bad day we use the toilet for 5% of the day. And, and, and I do specifically mention this example because I got around with 19 of my neighbors, hey, let's, let's share a toilet with 20 families. But that was not a good idea, as mm-hmm. you can imagine. The thing is, if you need the toilet, you want to have it. You want to have access to it. You don't want to f- find trademarks of other people if, if they're not your family. That's how people also handle cars, to my point of view. If, if you need it, you want to have it. Your vacuum cleaner, you use 0.2% of the time. You're not going to share your vacuum cleaner because if you drop something on the mm-hmm. floor or something, you want to... Clean it up right away. You want to clean it up right away. And they can say, yeah, but it's, vacuum cleaner is very cheap. Your vacuum cleaner is more expensive per minute than you use it. It uses more energy per minute than you use it. And and that's no, not, not maybe per minute, but at least for a lifetime, it's, it's also... It's so comparable to other things. Mm. Your bathroom. That's uh, a very interesting perspective because generally, you know, there's a lot of things that we sort of believe that mobility will be shared. It will be this and that. Yeah, and that. I don't. I don't share the sharing. So the the, the thing is as well, and and it, it, I must say, and so uh, I even have I'm guiding a startup also on shared mobility because I think it's a very interesting marginal phenomenon. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of money to make in that area for professional use. Maybe a lot of people might want to exchange their second car, and it can also be a service plus instead of a cost minus, mm-hmm. so that your second car can every now and then be a Porsche or. A, a, a moving van mm-hmm. or whatever that you need at that certain purpose. So as a service plus, I do believe in sharing and there's a very nice, but it will not be the biggest part. It's not that everyone is going to exchange their mm-hmm. own vehicle for a, for a shared car. Oh. So no, no, sorry. No, I'm not and a lot of people say, yeah, but Spotify, you used to have your own CDs and nowadays you don't have CD. But there's a fundamental difference with that. And that is that in Spotify times, you get access to your... Uh, your access to your music has improved massively. Mm. So with CDs, and you're probably even too young to to remember that, but with CDs, if you want to ha- hear a certain song, you have to go to your entire dictionary, dictionary set of CDs, a couple of hundreds, you know, before you have found it, because they're they're on alphabetical order, not. And then it was so the you don't CD. own it, but it became a more personalized service. Exactly. So the access has improved. Yeah. And with shared vehicles versus having your own vehicle. There's no way you can improve the access unless you live in a city, blah, blah, and it's, you have to park it very far from you. 
that might be the corner cases where it would be better to share. But in general, for the most people, that's relatively easy to have access to your car. And then a shared car will uh, will, will certainly not increase the access of the, the, the quality of that one. We're talking about city mobility, and this is very interesting, your, your perspective, because generally quite different from traditionally what people would assume Ish. mobility is going for, which mm-hmm. is fantastic. A quick point on intercity mobility. What do you see with, um, say, for example, how do you imagine that? Is that going to be flying? Is that going to be yeah. rail? Do we see Hyperloop? What's your say on that? No, the, the, I think rail has no future, hardly any. Though Europe is trying to make it yeah. usable again? Yeah, it's... it's Why it's, do you think it's no future? To it's, not, it's, not, it's not a scalable system. It's actually, there's a mathematical rule behind it that if you want to connect dots, a lot of dots... Um, then you you don't want to make the links very expensive because yeah. then it's not scalable. Mm. If the costs are in links, then it's very hard to set up a network. The links should be, and it's, you also that that's for, as a mechanical engineer also know from constructing buildings and 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 uh, and bridges, etc. The links have to be as cheap as possible. Yeah, uh, mostly pull strings so you can use wires, etc. And that makes a scalable system. In the case of trains versus planes, in planes the dots the costs are in the dots. And in the system itself, mm. the plane, uh, which is heavily used. Uh, if the link w- with trains is very expensive, then it's there's no way to make it scalable. Mm-hmm. Or you want to have about a couple of thousand peoples between two dots. Yeah. Then uh, the, the investment in the link might pay off. But there are hardly two dots in the world where, where it is. So you can only link to very economical, uh, uh, flourishing Hubs. Cities, yeah. hubs, and then it might pay off because there's a lot of traffic between mm. it. But the economical value of, of linking two economical high regions is very limited because they're yeah. doing already very well. Yeah. They're already overheated. And if you link a very economical high region with a low region in order to stimulate the low region, it always goes uh, on the cost of the low region. Yeah. It always attracts economical activity from the low activity region to the high activity region, which I've seen in Spain dramatically uh, things happen with high-speed rail. So connecting two dots with an expensive linking system is stupid. So would that be the same thing with Hyperloop? It, extremely more because it's even less flexible because you cannot just put an extra station in the midst. And Hyperloop is, is, a, is, 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 is such an utter nonsense. Sorry to say so. And I like students working on it because chasing for a stupid idea is fantastic because you find all kind of other stuff that you otherwise would have never found. There's a lot of spin-off from from flying to the moon, we had mm-hmm. a lot of spin-offs, of course, and this might also happen with Hyperloop, but it's not going to be a new modality system because it has fundamental problems, huge problems, I think unovercomable problems, mm-hmm. which might have been overcomable if there would be some kind of societal or economical goal behind it. But there's no, I I really do not see it's 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 a very very difficult solution looking for a problem. I don't see the problem you're solving with these mm. kind of connections. So what is your primary mode of transportation that you assume that will be most uh, prevalent in the next 20, 30 There's years? There's three winners in the future. Maybe four if you also look at the walking shoe you know, as a modality, <laughs> you know, the pedestrians. We should really focus on pedestrians again. That's how we always started once. That's what keeps us healthy, etc. So, But apart from pedestrians, the bike, the car, and the plane. They're going to be the winning modalities for the future. It's just that they're going to be safer, cleaner. Yeah, the, the the bike is the win-win-win situation because it makes you healthier. It makes cities 
much more beautiful and you can uh, the reachability of cities really increases so that's that's the, that's the win 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 so within cities you should just focus on trying to facilitate bikes so that people bring their own bike you don't have to have all these sharing schemes etc and now with electric bikes which is a really fundamental revolution um first things the range really uh, got got bigger so in the netherlands it was standard if people lived until five kilometers kilometers from their work they biked now electric bikes this moved up to 10 with the speed pedal like even to 15 20. yeah that means that the and, and the the the, the goes with the square of the the range you have the number of people in the surface that you can find and the car because it's it's the ideal machine to fulfill our biological urges it's this extension of your cave that's so much underestimated why you probably don't want to share it and we probably also don't want to get rid of it if it starts being even safer and cleaner as it is now mm-hmm that that's that's the thing that's going to happen and it's going to be much cheaper and it's going to be much more comfortable because it will drive itself for a certain part of the trip Which teslas already do right like, like since i drive a tesla i don't mind traffic jams anymore yeah. i'm serious about that i do not mind traffic jams anymore because it gives me the ability to do a little bit of twitter and working and do some mailing which officially is not allowed anymore mm-hmm. but it's also not a problem i can ethically do that because it knows how to do traffic jam driving right and for longer stretch of road, it will also take over in the next decades, etc. So it takes the nasty bits out of driving. It only gets more comfortable. It gets cheaper. I even foresee that driving a car per kilometer will be cheaper than driving a bicycle in the future. How would that be? Just depreciation of an average bike in the Netherlands is already seven, eight cents per kilometer. And if you have an average uh, occupancy of 1.4 in a car, uh, then you have about 10 cents per kilometer before it gets cheaper to drive a car. And I think we are approaching 10 cents per kilometer as, as driving costs for a car. So we, we will have cars, but we will find a way to hide them better from the cities. That's the biggest problem that we have to do. We have to keep them out of cities. We have to hide them from the site. We yeah. have to have more parking garages. We have to hide them in tunnels and what have you, etc. And then I think there's not a big problem left over to solve there. And And you can keep people from flying in the future so that's that's to my point of view also the biggest problem to solve how we make flying environmentally sound again again mm-hmm. to make it environmentally sane because that is not a sustainable way of transport at this moment on that area i put my stakes and not my money on, on electric flying for the shorter distance which i hope will be a little bit more silent than i fear but uh, it might be possible with a lot of small turbines mm-hmm. And for the bigger distances within now and 30 years, we probably will use a synthetic fuel. You can make a fuel out of CO2, water, and electricity. We do that here. We made a liter of kerosene from CO2, water, electricity. Uh, we are used, this is a mindset we were used to do the other way around, that mm-hmm. we have fuel and air and produce CO2, water, and electricity. And now it's the other way That's around. a generator, and you mm. cannot just turn the generator the other way around, but it's another chemical process. And and then you will also have sustainable flying in the future, which by then will be by far the most sustainable way of long-distance transport. Much more sustainable than the train that makes a lot of noise and has a lot of particle emission as well because of the, the wear of the copper wire and all that kind of stuff. So that's the future. Bikes, cars, planes. I think on that 
you fantastically sort of wrapped it up, you know. So we started off the conversation with the fact that humans are eminently mobile, and then you believe that this will be the future. And yep. in the last few sentences, you did also give your predictions. <laughs> so in a way, yeah, you're... I meant there's there's only one technology that that you can travel wherever you want, and also on an extreme sustainable way, and that's the virtual reality kind of travel. Where I also try to end my stories with, because that's that's actually something that's in the future that you just have. I do not mean that you can meet your grandparents in India uh, or or some friend in Australia without going there. No, it's the traveling themselves. This mm-hmm. this one hour and six minutes kind of biological need that you just fulfill on a virtual way. And I don't mean with glasses on. You probably in a few years from now you can hack directly on our senses. And you just have your one hour and six minutes experience and. In an ideal world, that saves a lot of energy and it's a lot. It's it's inherently safe. You can travel wherever you want. And well, by I mean that's a wild thought for anyone today. But by when do you think that that could possibly be the case? There's two scenarios. I think it will be good enough in about forty to fifty years. Uh-huh. On the other hand, if we by then, it probably not will be only driving that we're going to simulate. Of course. Then Why not all other biological behaviors and you can fill in yourself what, what kind of biological beha- needs that you have. If you can all simulate them in a much better way than real life, why not stay in that world? I think if we can do that in 40 years from now, we're probably going to recreate a world because we are kind of... Uh, I mean, we, 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 we tend to think that, the, that everything used to be better in the old days. Uh, so because of that, probably we're going to recreate the world as we know it from our uh, youth. So probably we're going to program the world as as it is 30, 40 years ago. So from 40 years onwards to the end of the universe, say 5 billion years later, we're going to live in a world that will probably look like the world as it is now. Which, on the other hand, means that the chance that this is really happening, what you're doing now, is kind of limited. Maybe we are already in this simulated world. That's what, exactly, yeah. So that's... This decade or somewhere in the next four billion years, where are we? Chances one on four hundred billion that it's uh, that it's uh, that it's real. What's happening now? Fascinating. Fa- I mean, fascinating thought. <laughs> that's, just, I- that's just a mind fart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, but- I, I can also give another picture on that one, but it's nice to leave you with this one, I guess. No? <laughs> I, I think we leave the list- listeners thinking, you know, from here. Now, yeah. this is fantastic, Carlo. Thanks for uh, being on the podcast today. My pleasure. And uh, here we are in Eindhoven. So, and uh, hey, it's always uh, good. I mean, there's a lot that I picked out and you pointed out very interesting concepts, which are, you know, traditionally overlooked. And uh, a lot of food for thought. Yes, and I hope, and I hope, come back in a few years, then we look how the institute looks like, and I hope some of the listeners now might be motivated in order to join us here and, <laughs> on, on tue.nl/ai. They can see Perfect. everything that we're planning here. So uh, be welcome. Thank you, Carlo. Yep. All right, cheers. Okay.